Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. scientist for Tyche Books. Um, I'm also a popular science writer. I've written for National Public Radio in the U.S. and Physics in Canada, here in Canada. Uh, I've been a big science fiction fan for a long time. Uh, I'm also a father, a uh, father of a geek. Um, this, is, this is my bundle of joy and my daughter. It's, it's a can-do fuel bundle. Uh-huh. She's it's empty. It's empty. Um, I'm a chess player as well. I also own guinea pigs. I lost this game. Um, darn guinea pig. And I'm, I'm raising my daughter to be every bit as much of a geek as I am. There's my daughter impaling me on a lightsaber. So I, I say all this to say I've, I've had a long interest in science fiction. And I think if you're going to grow up and be a physicist, a long interest in science fiction is a great place to start. But I would say, and you'll, you'll hopefully see this by the end of my talk, you've got to pick the right science fiction. So science fiction has inspired technology, and science for decades, perhaps centuries, and maybe even millennia. It has predicted science and technology. Sometimes it's gotten lucky. Sometimes it's done it deliberately. But it's also, and I'll spend a little time talking about this, influenced our view of technology, science, and scientists. And I would claim that that, in a lot of ways, is the biggest influence that science fiction has had on the world today. This talk originally started a year ago at the uh, Calgary Comic Expo. The physics department was approached saying, could somebody get up and talk for an hour on how Star Trek has influenced science fiction? And the physics department said, Jason's crazy, let's ask him. (laughs) So I said, I can do three minutes on how Star Trek has influenced science and technology. 
but I would be doing this in front of 100,000 Star Trek fans who converged on Calgary to see the entire next-gen cast and knew that I would be eaten alive by the fans because they know a lot more about Star Trek than I do. So here's the three minutes. Star Trek invented flip phones. If anybody has a flip cell phone, I realize they're now a little passe and archaic with the smartphones. So they invented flip phones. Oh, but they also invented tablets and smartphones, which are basically just tricorders, for those of you who remember tri tricorders. But as I said, the biggest influence is the influence on our perception of science and technology. Now, James Doohan, anybody remember who James Doohan is? Scotty, beam me up. So Scotty, or, or rather the, the actor who played Scotty, got an honorary PhD from the Milwaukee School of Engineering for his engineering inspiration. So many of the, this is a huge, huge school down in the States, and so many of the engineering students coming in said, well, you know, how did you get your start in engineering? Oh, by watching Star Trek. So they actually gave James Doohan, Scotty, who was like, why, why are you giving me this honorary degree? I mean, this is a wonderful honor. To, to get an honorary degree is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, so he gets this honorary PhD just for inspiring so many engineers. And an entire generation of engineers grew up having watched the NCC-1701. Uh, um, so much so that, anybody know what aircraft carrier this is? It's the Enterprise, you can tell because the E equals MC squared, right? So huge, huge influence. In fact, when I was in high school, uh, my high school English teacher told me that I had to know Shakespeare because every educated person needs to be aware of Shakespeare, and I do not disagree with that at all. However, I would argue that anybody who's going to grow up with a, uh, a career in science or engineering or anything technological related that Star Trek has become the Shakespeare, if you will, of science and, and of technology. Because it is far more important for me to be able to say, yes, I know what Pon Far is, than it is for me be, to be able to say, what a piece of work is man. So there's an entire documentary on this, which demonstrates William Shatner's acting abilities <laughs> at its finest called How William Shatner Changed the World. Uh, I watched it so you don't have to. Um, basically, Star Trek invented flip phones and tablets, and, and that's what they spend an hour spending talking about here. It's based on a book called I'm Working on That, A Trek from Science Fiction to Science Fact. So let's step back a little bit. Uh, anybody old enough to remember Jonathan Swift? 1726. Wow. <laughs> um, so, so I remember reading uh, Gulliver's Travels as a child. It came out in 1726. And it actually predicted that Mars had two moons. Over 150 years before this was, was suspected scientifically. I would say that this is an example of science fiction getting lucky as opposed to accurately predicting. Is this amazing? No. There's lots and lots of fiction out there, and the fiction is making all sorts of statements. And in making all of these statements, they're bound to get it right occasionally. But what's a little strange is that 26 years later, uh, Voltaire said the same thing in Micrometheus. Um, I don't think Voltaire read Swift. I can't prove that, though. So both of them get named 
the craters named after them on Mars. And here are the two moons, Phobos, of course, which is sphere, and Deimos, which of course is planet. Rolling forward to this century, um, I was a big Tom Swift reader when I was a kid. And when I was putting together this talk, I was quite surprised to discover the word taser actually stands for Tom Swift and his electric rifle. <laughs> Who knew? Taser. Um, so in this book, Tom Swift gets an electric, uh, electric rifle so he actually can shoot electricity over some distance, much the way a taser does today. Uh, so Victor Appleton, I thought initially, had invented this electric projectile device. But then when I looked into it some more, it turned out that uh, Jules Verne had created these Leyden jars. And what you do is you hook up the uh, one side of the Leyden jar, the other side of the Leyden jar across something like a Van de Graaff generator. You get 100,000 volts across that. And then in 20,000 leagues under the sea, this was a way you could actually shoot at things and kill them underwater. We have these in the physics department, but I'm not allowed to take them out. <laughs> but we do actually have uh, Leyden jars. Uh, we don't use them as projectile devices, though. Um, so one of the big difficulties is who came up with it first? And the answer is almost always H.G. Wells. When I read through Heinlein, when I read through Robert Sheckley, when I read through Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, um, who came up with it first? It was almost always H.G. Wells. So uh, much of it actually comes initially from a story of days to come, where in 1897 he predicts far, far off in the future. This was later expanded into a novel, uh, which also included information from When the Sleeper Awakes to The Sleeper Wakes, which was a full novel in 1910. This included moving sidewalks like we currently have in airports. Um, this did previously, they, they, they previously had done moving sidewalks at the uh, Chicago Expo in 1895. So it's unclear whether, where the true origin of that comes from. But mechanical surface digitizers, so the, the sleeper who has awoken in the far future, walks into a shop and gets poked and prodded by a machine that then figures out all of his measurements and then it creates a suit of clothing for him based on these measurements. Having read that, and having worked with a 3D printer, which is a very modern device that we have at the University of Calgary and a lot of other places, I would say that H.G. Wells predicted this roughly 100 years before we started having them. Uh, he also predicted DVDs, VCRs, and the moving picture player, which later becomes television. He also predicts in 1914, a full 31 years before the test in, at uh, Trinity, uh, the first atomic bomb. So he predicted specifically sustained atomic reaction, he predicted radioactive ruin, and he even named it the atomic bomb. Leo Szilard, the person who came up with the chain reaction idea for how to, how to make this happen, had actually read H.G. Wells, and this seems to be a portion of his inspiration. That being said, who did it first? It wasn't actually originally H.G. Wells, but a far less well-known author by the name of Robert Crummy in a story called The Crack of Doom. The major premise of The Crack of Doom gets repeated over and over again in science fiction, which is man has learned something that man was never meant 
to know, which has become a significant reaction to science throughout the 20th and now the 21st century. No talk would be complete without at least mentioning the War of the Worlds because it's the first alien invasion story. It talks about mechanized warfare. This is not the only place that H.G. Wells talks about mechanized warfare. In fact, he practically invented the army tank. But the tripods were what was so famous within these stories. He invents the heat razor ray. Now, this is a collimated beam of light that comes from a source. It's advanced technology that we now use to point to ancient drawings of advanced technology. <laughs> How's that for meta? So the big thing for me, though, with the War of the Worlds is that the War of the Worlds sets the stage for every single science fiction novel that deals with aliens from that point forward. The xenophobia inherent in this idea of men from Mars coming here to eat us <laughs> is kind of the subject of alien and aliens and starship troopers and every move, almost every movie and book that's come out about that. So whoever comes first gets to set the stage for everything else. The interesting thing for me about that is when one reads War of the Worlds in a historic context, War of the Worlds was not actually about people from Mars at all. It was about British occupation various places throughout the world. So it's, it's, it's actually a, a spree, if you will, a, a huge diatribe against British colonialism. But in order to make people listen, he had to drape it in fiction in order to make it palatable for the British to actually go, hmm, it would be bad to show up with advanced technology and decimate a population. That would definitely be an unfortunate thing to do. And that's what science fiction is. It's a way of removing what's in front of us far enough away so that we can see it from an objective viewpoint. Science fiction is always about now. It's always about today. But it's about today in such a way that we can step back from it and say, what would it be if? It can allow us to look at the unthinkable and think about it because it removes our emotional reaction. On the other hand, science fiction can also really instill an emotional reaction. The Island of Dr. Moreau, also by H.G. Wells, is where we first get the taste of genetic engineering. Keep in mind, this is coming out about 1903, and Watson and Crick don't make their discovery of the double helical nature, O, which was predicted the same year in the story, The Golden Helix, by Theodore Sturgeon. Coincidence? Yes, it is, actually. But how do we feel about genetic engineering? The existence of a cell particle that controls the living organism. Sounds like DNA to me. Why a rat grows like a rat, a bird like a bird. This thing, this cell that determines the shape of life, is that life? And that is what starts shaping how we feel about things like genetically modified crops. And of course, the stories keep coming. The whole point behind Jurassic Park, there are some things people were not meant to know. If we mess around with genetics, bad things will happen. We'll come back to Michael Crichton. Waldo, 
Hanson McDonald uh, was a pen name for, anybody know Hanson McDonald was, Hanson was his middle name, McDonald was his mother's maiden name. Robert Heinlein, anybody heard of Robert Heinlein? Yeah, so Robert Heinlein writing under the name of Hanson McDonald, and the reason he would do this is he was so successful that the magazines were like, can we just get a couple different names? We don't want to look like we're only publishing Robert Heinlein. Isaac Asimov had the same problem. Um, so, Waldo, a crippled genius, invents the telefactoring device, robotic manipulators, huge robotic arms that can move or work in environments that humans can't go into. And these things are now called Waldos. Named after the character. Okay. Other ideas from Heinlein include the uh, air dryer. Anybody use uh, an air dryer in a washroom recently to dry off their hands? Yeah, that was first in Coventry, a short story by Robert Heinlein. Um, artificial gravity-assisted childbirth. Okay, we don't actually have that. <laughs> but I thought it was so cool I had to include it anyways. <laughs> Here's the idea. The woman goes into labor, and then right as she's having a contraction, you push down on a, a pedal, and it increases the gravitational field to pull the baby out. Now, we don't have this, but somebody who read this story decided to make a huge centrifuge. So you strap the, the, the woman delivering the baby down to this chair, and then you spin her around several times a second, and there's a pedal to speed it up every I've yet to meet anybody who's willing to get in that. So sometimes, sometimes science fiction inspires stupid science and technology. Uh, atmospheric braking. Uh, aerobraking, this is how the space shuttle lands. Uh, it was first described in Space Cadet. A children's story, no less. Robert Heinlein writing children's stories was actually pushing the bounds of, of aerodynamics. Uh, personal rocket jet was in Space Cadet, another children's story. And screensavers. He not only predicted screensavers in Stranger in a Strange Land, but he predict specifically predicted fish in an aquarium going back and forth for a screensaver. Who knew? Isaac Asimov. If you want to read more about this, here's, here's the website I got a lot of this information from. Ticket machines. We have the, uh, the C-Train tickets in Calgary. This was invented in the second foundation, one of the Isaac Asimov books. Uh, calculator pads, iPads, pocket PCs were not originally Star Trek. It actually showed up five years earlier in Foundation, uh, which got the Hugo Award for the best science fiction series of all time. Uh, mechanical teacher and marker. Uh, this is computer teaching and scantrons in a short story called The Fun They Had. Speaking as somebody who, who is a teacher and actually works with various publishing houses to create computer-assisted learning. Homework sets where the students um, answer and the computer gives them feedback based on what their wrong answer is. We know how the students are getting it wrong and the computer helps the students correct. This was originally predicted back in 1964 in The Fun They Had. Radioisotopic thermal generators, RTGs, were first mentioned in Foundation and Empire. This is what we just used. This is what the Curiosity rover on Mars is using right now to power it. We've been using them a little while, but this is science fiction coming true. Now, uh, I am, I'm from Toronto. I'm American. <laughs> um, and, and I followed the last couple presidential elections pretty closely. There's a guy at 538.com named Nate Silver. He uses 
uh, he uses basically statistics in order to predict presidential elections. And in the previous two elections, he only got one state wrong out of a, effectively 100, which is better than any newscaster did. So I would argue that he has invented psychohistory. Nate Silver has taken psychohistory from the science fiction and is now using it to predict various elections and so forth. Science fiction is coming true. And the funny thing is, it's the most improbable science fiction that's coming true. Isaac Asimov looked at this as something that couldn't possibly happen. He was wrong. So when I was asking my colleagues about this, they said, oh, you've got to mention the geosynchronous satellite. So the geosynchronous satellite is often attributed to being Arthur C. Clarke, but it was first uh, proposed by Herman uh, Potochny, my Polish is very poor, in Science Wonder Stories. So around the turn of the 20th century, up till about 1948 or so, the science fiction magazines would also include popular science articles. So this is part of why we have such a huge, huge overlap between the science fiction and the science. Because if people wanted easy to read science, the place they could look for that would be science fiction. So this, this was proposed in one of these pulp magazines that, that kids would buy. Oh my, 10 minutes, okay. Proposed for radio coverage of the world. The first one was launched in 1961. Arthur C. Clarke wrote about this, but not originally in fiction. This is what Sputnik looked like, and here's what a geosynchronous satellite looks like. You can use this to build a space elevator. My brother, who's also a PhD in physics, um, is actually working on the, the technology to try and make a space elevator so you don't need rocket ships to go up into space. <laughs> a logic named Joe, in 1946, a short story in two paragraphs predicts logics, which are interconnected home computers, the Carson circuit, which is the worldwide connection of computers, an awful lot like the World Wide Web, tanks, which are computer screens and hard drives, message service, which is email, location service, which is Facebook, logic ser service, which is information about them, and Facebook, stock prices, which is day trading, an encyclopedia, which is Wikipedia, computerized phone calls, which is Skype, and shows, which is YouTube. He does this in two paragraphs, in 1946, just to set up his story. Now, I'm running out of time, but think to yourself of a, a scientist from a TV or a film. Did you think of a villain? Almost everyone does. And if you don't, if it is a good guy, how many of those good guy scientists are clueless, crazy, socially inept, <laughs> innocently to blame for whatever's going on, or only coincidentally scientist? Is this painting science in a good light? I would say no. Now, our myths shape our lives. Scientists are blamed in our media. Science has come under political scrutiny. Science is getting beaten up, both by politicians and by the media. Okay? Media creates a myth. And I don't just mean the newspaper media or the television media. I actually mean the fiction media that we have. That, I think, is a far bigger culprit here. And it comes up with these myths like, you don't know that. Eh, that's not quite how science works. Science can do anything. That's kind of off, too. Scientists are socially clueless guys. Um, yeah. Okay, that's kind of true. I'm an expert. I read an article on it once. There are very difficult, subtle scientific issues that we don't necessarily have the ability to come in as an outsider, read a single article on, and express a, an informed scientific opinion. Michael Crichton is not a scientist. He was a medical doctor. 
None of his science-sounding books were remotely accurate. Jurassic Park, horrifically inaccurate. Not as inaccurate as State of Fear or Prey, where he claims he disproves climate change. Ugh. And Gray, with the nanotech disaster coming. Keep in mind that movies would have us believe that robots can come up and say, Sarah Connor, I'll be back. <laughs> what robots can actually do is potentially bruise Sarah Connor's ankle. But what does this really look like? If you ask a group of seventh graders and some people in uh, just outside of Chicago did before visiting Fermi Labs, this is what they thought a scientist looked like. Of the 30 students, every single one of them drew a white male. This is what they drew after the visit. <laughs> I have more pictures if you want to see them during the question period. A quick survey. Is natural radiation or man-made radio radiation more harmful? There's no difference. You can't tell the difference even with s sensitive equipment. But in the movie The China Syndrome, which was released the same week as Three Mile Island, all of a sudden, the movie, not the accident, brought the nuclear industry to its knees. Radiation in movies happens all the time. It's where Godzilla comes from, Spider-Man. Spider-Man was bitten by an irradiated spider. It's twice removed. Superman, the Fantastic Four, and my students know that, but they don't know what alpha, beta, and gamma particles are. <laughs> so science fiction has changed our world. Our science has changed the world. And every place you see rapid scientific development, the ancient Chinese had science fiction. The Russians had science fiction on the other side of the Cold War. We never have science without having science fiction. But these stories create our myths. Our myths shape our perceptions, shape our reality shape what information we'll accept and we won't accept. So science fiction has had a huge, huge impact on people's perceptions of science, far bigger than its actual impact on science itself. And that is creating both an unrealistically good perception of science, where science can do everything. We don't have to worry about the environment. Science will fix it. Ugh. The laws of thermodynamics, we'll break those. No, we won't. And an unrealistically bad view of science. I don't want to have that. That's been genetically modified. Um, actually, there are no crops today that haven't been genetically modified. There haven't been crops for the last two or 3,000 years that haven't been genetically modified. It's impossible for humans to grow crops without modifying the genome over time, just from the sheer selection. And we've been growing crops for thousands of years. So we have these fears. We have these reactions. They come from our stories. They come from the implicit understanding of what we know to be true and what we assume to be true. And the science fiction that we watch is often the very overt science fiction like Star Trek. But it's also the very covert science fiction like CSI. We can't do the forensic science that CSI does. It gives us a very, very unrealistic expectation of what science can do. That being said, I'll keep enjoying my science fiction. Thanks.